The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Billy Goat Gruff LLC creates AI Billy Goat Gruff to take on the Terminator troll at the bridge over the Well of Souls at the beginning of time. Transforming dragons and a Carrera-verse of war. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor, Tony Daniel. Hey, we'd be grateful if you would go to iTunes or wherever you get the podcast and give the Bain Free Radio Hour a five-star rating and email us with any questions or comments at podcast at bain.com. We love hearing from you. Take a second and send a note if you like something or have a comment. And thank you very much. We interview one of the editors and several authors from a great new anthology of space pirate stories now at booksellers. That book is Cosmic Corsairs, edited by Hank Davis and Christopher Rocchio. Arg, we have quite the gang of ruffians and freebooters discussing their stories this time. These include Christopher Rocchio, Carissa Locke, James L. Cambius, and Sarah A. Hoyt. So Avast ye hearties, that is coming up. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. Every month along about the 15th, we offer new fiction and frequently some nonfiction too reading for you uh, to enjoy absolutely free at the Bain.com website. This month is double the greatness in both counts. We have two new stories and two new nonfiction think pieces up. That's a four-wheel drive vehicle of reading pleasure. <laughs> First, we have a new story by Tim Aker, set in the world of his upcoming contemporary fantasy adventure novel, Night Watch. And that story is called The Hero Business. Bethany used to love going to the Renaissance Fair before. Yet when you come face to face with real deal monsters, it ain't quite the same anymore. But a hero goes where a hero is needed. And now that place is a soccer field in the middle of the USA where there's about to be a supernatural eruption of staggering proportions. Also in August, we have a great short story from the winner of the 2020 Bain Fantasy Adventure Award. It's a really excellent tale called Human Slayer by G. Scott Huggins. Any dragon could dive upon a party of humans and incinerate them in a storm of fire and eat them. But to take on the form of a human, to slay them with their own weapons, that would be a coup that would truly earn one a high name among dragons. So the young dragon thought until he found himself trapped in the form of a human. After that, all bets were off. And ahoy, mateys. Also in August, we have some great nonfiction to accompany our great short story anthology, which you'll be hearing about shortly, Cosmic Corsairs. We have an excellent piece on space pirates called Space Pirates by Mark Lardis. In Space Pirates, Mark Lardis takes us on a guided history of piracy in the real world and in the imaginative tales of authors, such as David Weber, Lois McMaster Bujold, David Drake, and more. 
And there's even more. Beginning this month, we have the first part of a three-part series by Tom Crapman. This is the who, what, where, when, why, and how of the Carreraverse. Tom Crapman's Patricio Carrera series has cut a swath through the military science fiction genre. And Crapman's best-selling latest entry, Days of Burning, Days of Wrath, is at booksellers in hardcover and on ebook, of course. In Notes on the Carreraverse, the first of a three-part essay, Crapman outlines the history and world-building of his popular creation. It's excellent material written in Crapman's inimitable style. Notes on the Carreraverse, part one by Tom Crapman. Space Pirates by Mark Lardis, Human Slayer. Hey, the winner of this year's Bane Fantasy Adventure Award by G. Scott Huggins and The Hero Business by Tim Akers. Check them all out at Bane.com. And if you're listening to this later, you can still read these great pieces in two free ebook downloads. Those are called Free Stories 2020 and Free Nonfiction 2020. And they are both available in all the ebook formats at Bain ebooks at Bain.com. Check these out. It's a wonderful chance to read some free stuff, some free stories and articles, and all of them will whet your appetite for some great Bain books. Hey, our Cosmic Corsairs interview is coming up. If you are watching the video version, there's an introductory segment where you don't see the other authors and the editor, but they will pop up right after the introduction is done. Hey, want to welcome Christopher Rocchio, uh, Carissa Locke. Uh, James Cambius, James L. Cambius, and uh, Sarah A. Hoyt to the podcast. Hello, folks. Hey, Tony. Good afternoon. Let me do a, a brief introduction of everyone. Christopher Rocchio is the author of The Sun Eater, a space opera fantasy series, as well as the assistant editor at uh, Bain Books, where he has co-edited four anthologies. He's a graduate of North Carolina State University, where he studied English rhetoric and the classics. Christopher's been writing since he was eight and sold his first novel, Empire of Silence, at 22. Enfant terrible. <laughs> to date, his books have been published in five languages. Christopher lives in Raleigh, North Carolina, with his wife, Jenna. He may be found on Facebook and Twitter under the Rockio. Um, Carissa Locke has been writing stories since she started with horrible Star Wars fanfic in the sixth grade. She says it was bad. We don't know. Maybe it was just bad for her. Her love of science fiction and fantasy began in childhood with her parents, who were both fans of the genre and avid readers. She lives in the she lives in the Pacific Northwest with her husband and two rescue dogs. Her telepathic space pirate series is based on a role play game her best friend created and ran for their gaming group from 2004 to 2006. Although much has changed and evolved as the books have been written, many of the characters began life as sheets, on sheets with uh, dice rolls. And this uh, story of, of Carissa's that's in the anthology is set in that world, I believe. We'll talk about that. Uh, Sarah A. Hoyt won the Prometheus Award for her novel Dark Shift Thieves, published by Bain, and has also co-authored Dark Shift Renegades, uh, which was also no. a Prometheus Award. Yes. No, Dark Ship Renegades is just mine. I've co-authored Uncharted, which won the Dragon ah. two years ago yeah. with Kevin J. Anderson. 
Yeah. Uncharted. Uh, yeah, I was going to. All right. So Dark Ship Renegades is not a co-authored book. And A Few Good Men is part of that series through Fire and uh, Dark Ship Revenge are, are all part of the, the Dark Ship series. Uh, she's written numerous short stories and novels in science fiction, fantasy, mystery, etc. Um, under a number of pseudonyms and has been published in Analog, Asimov's, and Amazing. For Bain, she's written three books in her popular Shapeshifter fantasy series, Draw One in the Dark. I love these books. Gentleman Takes a Chance and Noah's Boy. Her According to Hoyt is one of the most outspoken and fascinating blogs on the internet, as is her Facebook group, Sarah's Diner. Yeah, Uncharted, uh, which she co-wrote with with Kevin J. Anderson was the uh, was a Dragon Award winner. That's the cool. Yeah. What are we calling that series again? I'm trying to the Arcane uh, America, right? Okay. Arcane America series. It's the the opening book in that that series. Originally from Portugal, she lives in Colorado with her husband, two sons, and a surfeit of cats. And uh, she co-wrote this story that we're going to talk about with with her husband Daniel. No nope. um, son, Robert. Oh, it's with Robert, is it? Wow. Who is no longer living in Colorado, but yes, um, we uh, we created this universe together, and there are we have planned on a series of short novels to introduce the characters, and then we have novels planned, real novels, not not you know novellas, whatever this was. Um, so it's we used to take midnight drives to to Denver from Colorado Springs and plot. Well, um, before we get started specifically about the stories, maybe Christopher, since you are you have a story in the anthology, but you are also um, one of the editors. Tell us a little bit about the conception and theme and and et cetera. And, and I, did I miss your introduction of James? Yeah, I was going to say you oh, missed James. James. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let me get to that. My God. All right. James L. Cambius, uh, right? Science fiction and designs games. Um, famous game designer. His new urban fantasy novel, The Initiate, was published in February by Bain Books. Um, originally from New Orleans, he was educated at the University of Chicago and lives in Western Massachusetts. His first novel, A Darkling Sea, uh, was out from Tor as well as Corsair, Bain Books released his third novel, Arcad's World, in 2019, which is science fiction. Um, really cool, uh, really cool sort of planetary romance science fiction. I, it, it reminded me of Andre Norton, although we, we talked about that on a previous podcast. Um, his short stories have appeared in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Shimmer, Nature, um, and several original anthologies, most recently in Retellings of the Inner Seas, um, let's see, as a game designer, Mr. Cambius has written, Mr. Cambius has written for Steve Jackson Games, Hero Games, and other role-playing publishers, and he co-founded Zygote Games. Since 2015, he has been a member of the XPRIZE Foundation, Science Fiction Advisory Board, which sounds very cool. Um, and uh, you can check him out at his blog at uh, jamescambius.com. So, uh, Christopher, tell us about the uh, the anthology and the uh, the reason for its being. Well, so like a lot of the books that I, anthologies that I've done with Bain, this is actually Hank Davis's idea. Hank could not uh, join us today, um, and uh, he uh, he gets these concepts. Uh, 
you know, together and I sort of do all the paperwork, talk to authors and agents and things and get stuff together. And Hank just wanted to do a story about space pirates. Uh, you know, we've done one about lawyers in space. Uh, we've done one about pioneers and it seemed like it was pirates turn. Um, you know, so uh, we just uh, really wanted to get a sort of, uh, I guess, a vertical slice of uh, space pirate stories throughout uh, the history of science fiction. We've got some running back to the golden age with uh, a Fritz Leiber story and a James Blish that haven't really been uh, reprinted uh, either ever. I think the Leiber has never been reprinted. The Blish might have been reprinted only once. So we're trying to get some stuff from, uh, from classical antiquity, as it were. Uh, and, and rerun those and some more uh, contemporary stuff and some original stuff as well. Otherwise uh, known as my childhood, yes. Yes, yeah. Uh, <laughs> medieval times, Tony, medieval yes. times. All right. uh, so we, we just wanted to get a, a, a real sample of, uh, of space pirate stories throughout the history of the genre, put those together, stuff from back in the day, uh, some more modern stuff, and, and as I say, some brand new stuff as well. I think uh, with, with the exception of Jim here, everyone who's with us did the original stories for this book. Um, so... Uh, you know, we got yeah, you got a Larry Niven. Uh, yeah, who else? Uh, Niven's in there. Uh, gosh, I do like four at a time. It's hard to keep them straight. Uh, Greg Benford, Brian uh, uh, Trent, uh, Robert Silverberg, Arlen Andrews, Catherine McLean, uh, James H. Schmitz. You know, it was quite quite a quite a catalog. Yeah, very cool, very cool. Um, so out now at booksellers everywhere is this book. It's called Cosmics Corsairs, edited by um, Hank Davis and Christopher Rocchio. Um, well, let's talk about, since Sarah was talking about this, uh, although she's adjusting her camera now. It's hell. <laughs> she controls the vertical and the horizontal. Um, I have amazing powers. Uh, okay. It's on now. So, okay. So uh, let's see here. Let's talk about trading up then, um, which is uh, it's a cool uh, it's a cool uh, story that is um, that that's set in a world. Just kind of set it up, maybe. Um, we we start in a bar, um, and our guy needs something. Our main character needs something, um, and he's willing to bargain for the chance to get it. Um. The the. The universe started during one of those midnight tribes, as I said. It started with a throwaway, you know what it would be called Harry Potter in science fiction. And from that we start, this is not the main character of the series we have planned, but he's one of the supporting characters. And we wanted it to be commerce positive and uh, trading positive and all the, and, and the idea is this kid and, and the main character and all end up in the school for interstellar traders that teaches them to, because it's immensely complicated. There's laws for each world. And so, and Harding very quickly became one of the more fascinating characters. It's clear he had a really bad background. Um, so when he contacted me, I was, Robert was, he was doing his residency and he was kind of getting, applying for residency programs and which is why he isn't here, is at work. 
and he was very busy and, and discussing all this. And I wa he was in the living room and I said, oh, I don't have any ideas. I'll have to see if I can. He said, ideas for what? I said, well, Hank says they're doing a Corsair anthology. And he said, oh, let's do Harding origin story. And he was really excited about it. So, so we have, we have a really complete world building and about 15 characters and Harding was the obvious one for a Corsair story. Although his girlfriend is an alien shapeshifter, so she could have worked too, but she doesn't appear yet at this age. So. Yeah. Well, he is, um, see, he's trying to get a fake degree, although he would fully qualify for the degree that he's after. Yes. Yes, so that he can move from a Sheva world where he is controlled by his dad's uh, almost mob empire into being his own person and being an honest trader. Our, our original title was a poor but honest trader and I told Robert that that was kind of blah. So we changed it at the last minute. So the um, it's his dad that he wants to get away from, but this is a, a, a rather uh, different different family arrangement that he's got. Oh yes, <laughs> yes. He, his dad is his dad is a lunatic psychopath. Is the best way to put to put it. Using um, using science fiction means to create the ultimate mob family in which each of his kids competes with the other. And um, anyway, I, I don't want to, to give away too much, but uh, what I liked about the story is we did the first version and then I passed it on to Robert and Robert chopped it all up and, and rewrote it. So it combines both character development with really fast action throughout. And I like that. It's almost yeah, it's, like a thriller type movie. It's, it's a, I mean, it, as it's got your, your trademark, uh, fast moving action and uh, character development is the, um, the means that he wants to get this sort this fake degree is um he wants to he knows a guy you know he's a mobster so he knows a guy um he knows a guy that can get it for him but the guy wants him to do something um yes. and this is where the piracy comes in right what what yes. uh what's the guy we, i don't think we're giving anything away if we talk about what what he's well the guy wants to to stop uh pirating on his line of of, of not legal transport to begin with, but um, a Harding, Harding is pretty much willing to do anything at that point, and, and that's our set about it. Uh, but the, the um, it turns out more difficult than he thought, and, uh, and puts him, also it it's a hard emotional confrontation, which which was necessary. Well, he's um, he's he's basically there's somebody that's been taking uh, pirating weapons on this run. Yes. And uh, this guy wants him to to figure out who has been stealing their weapons. So he's he's um, what setting himself up as bait. Yes, 
and he ends up he ends up of course pirating the pirate which it's kind of how do i put this at one point i was talking to david drake i think it might have been during a panel and we were talking about how because i i often used at that time i used i'm just going to run away and become a pirate and and we we have this fascination with pirates but if you read about real historic pirates it was a fairly squalid and horrible type of life it would be like running away with a drug cartel i mean it's it's that level so we wanted him to be in a better moral position than i'm just going to go pirate someone even though he is not the least morally ambiguous character in the world we'll just put it that way but well, it's kind of a libertarian universe where the yes. punishment you receive if you get caught for things is um is is you have to pay fines and such um, yes yes it's kind of like it's going to debtor's prison by design it's a very as i said we wanted it to be commerce positive trading positive uh the aliens and and us are all enmeshed in a uh, uh trading web so there's a lot of interplanetary trading a lot of specialized trading and which is why you know in in later on in in the actual first novel entire planets save up send one kid to to trading school it, it's normally i don't design things to have an ideological or even a moral message because i just write but since the world was built by both of us and it came from conversations we kept saying things like well maybe we don't want to do that because that sends a weird message and so it ended up being that way have you ever written with robert before no that was our first story together we we do we have plotted at each other it's the best way to put it since he started i found out he was writing because i got a note from stan schmidt saying wait i thought your husband was dan i just got the story from robert from your address did you remarry and i'm going even if I had, it wouldn't work that way. I said, no, that's my son. He's 10. <laughs> and he said, he's 10. I'm going to send him a rewrite request. I'm writing it right now. And he did, but it was Robert's first story. He hasn't asked us to send it or anything. And he, he just didn't know how to rewrite. As I think everyone here will agree, it's much harder to rewrite than to write. And then he sold his first professional story at 13. And he, he has sold off and on occasionally. But, and we plot at each other. If he has an invitation for an anthology, he usually finds me. I don't know how this is going to work with him living in another state, but he usually finds me and comes and talks at me and goes, what if I do this? Would this work? What? So we that's a lot of this is together we haven't 
collaborated before. Cool. And uh, what is what is his other job, by the way? <laughs> you mentioned a residency. Oh, he is, is doing, re he finished his MD this summer and he's doing his residency. Um, so. Cool, cool. So, uh, well, let's, um, anything else we want to say about uh, trading up that we didn't uh, cover? I should point out in works with him, here's this, he is perfectly sane, the insanity just comes out in the story. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That could probably be said of all of us. Oh, <laughs> <So. laughs> well, yes, true. Um, except for Christopher. Um, so uh, <laughs> let's let's talk about Carissa's story, which is a which is sort of a all right. It also begins on a space station, right? Uh, this is where the casino, or is it on a world? No, it's a space station, right? It's a space station. Yep. Um, what's going on? In, let me find the title of the story. Um, it's uh, called Pirate, Pirate Chance. Chance. Um, what's going on here? And who is uh, Palace and uh, Mercy? Well, so Mercy is actually the main character in my um, Telepathic Space Pirate series. And um, when that series starts, like there's a prologue of her as a kid. It's right after she's... Um, been separated from her mother like she basically palace goes missing and one of the driving forces throughout the main series is um that loss life on the run with her mother from the pirate family that they're from and so a lot of my readers have had questions kind of about what that was like and about Palace in general, because she's a mysterious figure within the series. I've, I've doled out little bits of information, but since it's a through line for the whole personal arc for Mercy, um, I'm super careful about what gets revealed in each book. And I just thought, you know, when this anthology opportunity came up, I obviously wanted to set it in my universe because you, you know, that's, it would be great to tie that in. And you don't have to reinvent the entire wheel of a world, right? right? Yeah. Do, do like a whole bunch of world building for one small story when I already have a, a bunch um, of, around pirates even. So, um, and, and I just thought, you know, what would be a really good, I have a lot of things I could have gone with, a lot of side characters I could have told a story about, but I wanted something that would be a good introduction to the universe itself and the characters in it and kind of the pirates, but but be also standalone. It, you know, you don't have to read anything else to understand what's going on. And that would be fun for my existing readers, something that they would never get to see otherwise. And so that's how I kind of landed on doing a story about Palace that's set many years before my main series. And it's really just kind of a glimpse at the kind of life she and Mercy had to live while they were on the run from Mercy's grandmother, who was, you know, the leader of the Queen of the Pirates, who was hunting them and wanted to kill Mercy. So, so that's who she's worried about is coming. Yes, and that's why she's hiding out. Is the grandmother, yep, who is her mother, right? Um, Correct. Because this is from Mercy's mother's point of view. So yep. this is backstory on the main character in your series. 
That's correct. This is, this is like what happened when she was little. So um, tell us a little bit, what the heck is a telepathic uh, space pirate? <laughs> anyway <laughs> so what's what's funny is that that was like the working like like when back when i wrote the first draft of book one in like 2007 2008 and i had a blog and and i was querying agents and all this stuff i would tag posts that were about that series telepathic space pirates and um i one of the agents that i queried little did i know i mean i locked down my posts they were friends only you never know who on the internet's reading your stuff because one of the agents i queried she was for a big house she responded immediately and was just like i've been hoping you would query me about this series i'm really interested in reading the first book and then so she read the first manuscript gave me great feedback asked for a rewrite and then um i told her i said i really need to come up with a better series name like a series name for it and she said you know, you should consider just keeping telepathic space pirates because it says everything about it and who doesn't want to read about that and like you should embrace that. And I was like, I don't know. And my, to this day, my husband thinks it was a mistake to keep it. But you know what? She was right. No one else is writing a series called that. So, <laughs> so that's where the phrase came from um, as to what they are. It's um, I get a lot of reviews that are like, wow, I was expecting this to be really cheesy and it wasn't, I'm, you know, I'm totally surprised. <laughs> so there, there's a little bit more of a military background. They were- Yeah, it's not a, I mean, contrary to the series title, I mean, it, it does have a, it, it does have a connotation perhaps of being humorous and this is not really a humorous story. No, this it's not- This is a pretty intense story about a mother trying to protect her daughter. Yeah, and in my my main books, like I inject, there's humor in them. Characters do funny things or say there's funny relationships, that kind of a thing. But humor is definitely not the main tone. It's a much more serious space opera. I call it epic fantasy in space because it's got that you know kind of kind of feel with the the main character who rises up to become queen, blah blah blah, big epic stakes, all that kind of stuff. And the pirates themselves started off as basically a military experiment in the big war that used to cover the entire galaxy. Like the backstory of the universe is that, um, you know, boring over resources and planets and nobody could agree on anything. And you had all these factions and it was like an arms race who could come up with the best, you know, super weapon to, to take over as much of the territory and resources as possible. And one particular faction developed the, the psychic abilities that later become the telepathic space pirates. And it's not just telepathy, it's all kinds of, um, you know, abilities that basically make each of them a, a, a weapon in their own right. And um, that turned the entire tide of the war and then once the war finished, basically the powers that be decided these, you know, we can't control them. We don't want them turning on us. And so they outlawed talent and started hunting them down and sending kill squads after them and killing them. Call a, the, having these powers is the talent. There's, yes. Know, there's yeah. The talent, yeah. And then and they, you they set fled. it up as a, as we begin, um, palaces, she's just kind of like sipping at people's, surface thoughts and things and you set it set it up as as because there's a there's a great moment when she reveals just how badass she is which you know we don't but um 
it seems it's just telepathy at first, right? Everybody, so the kind of the world building piece is that telepathy and telekinesis in their most basic form is something that everybody has to some degree. It might be um, really low, like somebody might have such a low level of telepathy that they can only um, basically brush the lightest surface thoughts of people they know really well or are in close proximity to. Or I've got a telepath in my universe named Trion who likes to think he's the greatest telepath who's ever been born, who seems to have, you know, no limits on his ability and um, distance doesn't matter for him. He can, you can space jump that I use space jumping um, as my, my hyperspace kind of space travel thing. You can space jump away. And the, the big thing in the series is that he's the only one who's ever been known that could track somebody past a space jump, you know, that kind of a deal. So the, the range and power is, is really big, but then all of the other psychic powers are based out of either telepathy or telekinesis. So um, I have uh, one character who has the ability to heal um, and that is, it's called biokinesis. So it's based in telekinesis, but she can affect, you know, um, living tissue and, and all of that kind of a thing. And it's a very um, unique talent. And, and that is from the telekinesis family. So I have, I have actual like flow charts of these powers and how they're related to telepathy or telekinesis. And, and Pallas was a big mystery. No one knew what her abilities were. So I've hinted at them in the series. And this story is the first time that readers have seen her actually use um, her abilities in a really big way. So, yeah. well, yeah, it's really cool. So she's protecting in the story. She's protecting her daughter who, um, who, who people are after and herself. Um, and uh, she's working at a casino. Um, maybe just talk a little bit about this, the, the casino and the opening and, and what, um, what the fear is uh, of why, why pirates come into this, might come into this. <laughs> so um, she's basically using the casino to hide out. She's using her, um, her telepathy. Her job is as a spotter, like she is looking for people cheating. And obviously they have lots of technology. This is a science fiction world. So like casinos today, they have a lot of technology all over the place trying to catch people cheating. But just like they have technology, there's also like um, uh, biotech implants and things that people can have that are illegal where they can come in and use those against the house. And so Pallas has a, you know, kind of a secret weapon where she uses it, her telepathy to actually read people's thoughts and figure out if they're cheating. Um, obviously her employers don't know that's how she does it. They just think she's really good at spotting these. And it, it's kind of intimated in, this, in the story that they don't stay anywhere really long. This is just one stopover for her and Mercy where she can disappear for a while. Um, she knows that there are people trying to track her. And so she's not going to stay any one place too long. Um, and kind of where, where the conflict of the story enters is when she um, finds out basically that there's supposedly pirates headed to the casino to rob it. And for her, of course, that's much more dangerous than just the casino being robbed. For her, that means they could discover she and Mercy are there and, um, you know, and, and then bad things happen. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, um, we should probably leave it there without any more spoilers. Um, anything else we want to say about the story that, um, that's a good setup. 
<laughs> yeah, no, uh, you know, hopefully people enjoy it. and um, It's an yeah. entree into the series. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's head back to Earth and talk about, um, and to more modern, uh, to more uh, primitive times, which is like our near future. Talk about Jim Cambius's story, which is called The Barbary Shore. Um, this is kind of cool because this is piracy. Um, this is drone sort of based by, I don't know. How would you describe it? Well, yeah, that's, that was my great insight is that you can make space piracy work in hard SF if you just leave the pirates on the ground. So the, the pirate ships are duking it out in space, but the, the pirates and the pirate hunters are all sitting in, you know, swivel chairs somewhere on earth. So we're in a relatively near future. Um, I, I think my my sort of unspoken date is that this was about 2030. I think there are satellites at the uh, with the L5 points and, and such. Uh, well, it's the L1. It's the it's the L2 point. It's the point between Earth and the moon. No, sorry, the L1 point, but the point between Earth and the moon which is both a semi-stable position. So you can park something there and it'll stay there with minimal station keeping for a long time. And it's part of the minimum energy trajectory from the earth to the moon and vice versa. So if you're going, if you're carrying something valuable from the moon to the earth, you're gonna pass right by a place where the pirates can park their spacecraft. And you're gonna be traveling at your slowest relative speed right then. So it's like the Florida Strait in space. You got the Spanish treasure galleons, you got a newer bottleneck, you know where they're gonna go. <clears throat> and you can park your, your pirate Corsairs there and, and snap them up. So how can, how can an individual or a group afford something like that as a pirate? How do they do it? How do they pull it off? Well, part of it is, and this is again pretty realistic, the payloads are so insanely valuable because of course, you're not gonna mine anything on the moon that's not worth incredible sums. And uh, I did the math, a ton of helium three, which is what they're mining and what they're shipping back to earth, would be something like a billion dollars a ton. So, you know, that pays for a lot of pirate ships, especially if they're, you know, cheaply built and, you know, essentially disposable, you know, uh, I was assuming that, you know, they're also, um, you know, that there's at least some, uh, probably some political involvement, because it's all these shadowy governments, you know. Um, well, that's I, really interesting part of the story is because it's almost, it's, it's law piracy almost as much as it is space piracy. Yeah, well, again, I was trying to stick to a, you know, I mean, piracy always exists within sort of, you need a legal framework for piracy, right? So yeah. in the golden age of piracy, the reason it worked was that the pirates could skedaddle back to safe ports in British or French colonies after preying on the Spanish and, or even in some cases, friendly Spanish colonies where the governors were on the take. And, um, you know, the, the Spanish could complain, but there wasn't really much they could do. <clears throat> and as soon as the British and French had, you know, essentially crippled the Spanish empire or annexed it, all of a sudden piracy became unacceptable and was stamped out ruthlessly by British and French warships. 
And the uh, and, and why do you call it the Barbary? Uh, um, because the Barbary pirates were the ones that were in North Africa, right? And, and yeah. they're the ones Jefferson sent his little. Yes, uh, um, I to be perfectly honest, I don't remember why I use that title. I suspect it's a quotation, but I don't remember where it's from now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, so um, so you have two main characters. One of them is the pirate, and one of them is is the uh, is the officer um, who is who's after him, Elizabeth, and uh, is it David? Um, David? Right. So you have David Arnold, who, in, when I extended this short story into a novel, he became David Schwartz. But David David Arnold, aka Captain Black, the space pirate, and every pirate has to have a nemesis, right? So Captain Black's nemesis is Captain Santiago of the Space Force, which is to say Elizabeth Santiago of U.S. Space Command. But he is not in space. He is actually sitting by a pool um, right. at a, he's at at a, a nice hotel. hotel. He's at a luxury hotel in Bangkok, whereas she is in, you know, um, um, some, you know, government issue office in uh, 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 Colorado Springs. So... Um, you know, sitting under a fluorescent light in a government issue swivel chair. <clears throat> and the fact that they're not that far away from Earth means that they can control all this stuff in virtual reality. Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, that David is a lot more into that than Elizabeth. He's got his game set up. He's, he's using a pirate game interface to control his space pirate ship. He even visualizes it that way. He's right? actually setting off cannons and ordering virtual crewmen around where she's just, you know, issuing orders to other people sitting at consoles in Colorado Springs. Yeah. Now these two have a history that we learn about a little bit during the story. Um, I, we could probably talk about that a little bit because it's a... Right. They were both at MIT together. Um, and uh, even then David had something of a, a piratical streak, um, whereas Elizabeth even then was a bit more uh, responsible, and so that led to their uh, first falling out when he was uh, uh, hacking, control, taking control, pirating, if you will, a, uh, a traffic drone, traffic control drone, and uh, using it to buzz a uh, sporting event with, I like to think I was being realistically uh, prescient, you know, with about the results you would expect if somebody hacked control of a drone and tried to buzz a sporting event, everybody freaks out, including law enforcement. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and and at, even at that time, uh, she is both appalled and thinks it's kind of cool, and he doesn't really understand that he's scared the hell out of a bunch of people and maybe yeah. has caused her harm. Yes, he doesn't. He ne he never quite realizes the harm he is doing. And when I expanded it into a novel a few years later, that became a much bigger issue because basically the potential harm he was doing got a lot bigger. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, uh, what else can we say about the story without giving too much? I really like the uh, the blend of um, of the way that he dumps ownership of the ship like instantaneously is pretty cool. Yes, it's when instead of running up the black flag, what happens is you liquidate the shell company that supposedly owns the spacecraft. <laughs> that indicates that you're a pirate. Yeah, like instantly. Yeah. yeah. So, whoa, hold on a moment. <laughs> My bookshelf fell. <laughs> there we go.
Okay. The uh, the green screen never broke the illusion either. Uh, <laughs> it just looked like you just like reached out. Yeah, it looked like you were holding nothing. <laughs> well, I was trying for. Uh, I was trying for. Uh, I had a pirate ship background, but it just was. I had a Jolly Roger background, but it was right behind my head, so it wasn't working. So I just went for the bookshelves. Okay. Uh, so, uh, what else can we say about the story, Jim? That um, I, I just think it's a really cool duel between two really smart people. Yeah, that was the idea. Is that you know, space piracy is is not going to be a game for. It's not like maritime piracy where you can get a bunch of guys with AK-47s and put them in a speedboat and try to rob a ship. You know, you need a certain degree of technical savvy, and that means it's even in the story. I think I say you know the space law enforcement is, and space commerce is a small community. So everybody kind of knows everybody else. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, it's a really cool story. Um, well, let's go back out into, uh, into the broader universe and uh, talk about Christopher's story, which has swashbuckling and, uh, and the use of sword-like objects. Uh, that's called The Night Captain by Christopher Rocchio. Um, so this is set in your uh, Sun Eater uh, series, universe is that right or oh totally yeah in much the same way uh, as chris's story this is uh an excerpt an episode uh side story from the the larger the larger story um i uh i sort of planted this one because i've been writing my novels for daw in parallel to working on all these uh, anthology projects with uh with bane and uh, i knew we were doing a pirate thing so i had my character in the previous book i just finished mentioned that they had a run with pirates so that i could I could do this as a side piece. No, I've been going back and forth doing that with each, with most of the stories that I've put in the Bane anthologies. There's been a reference to somewhere. Um, so, what is a night captain? Uh, so, in, uh, in in my distant future, uh, we have faster than light travel, but the galaxy's still really big because uh, the Star Wars it takes 30 seconds to get to Alderaan thing was always unsatisfying for me. It made the universe feel about as big as. Uh, you know, a city. And uh, so even at warp speeds, we're talking about years and decades between. And so uh, long distance travel requires a skeleton crew, um, but a crew nonetheless, because AI is also quite illegal, um, to maintain uh, the ship while the uh, primary crew, uh, the captain owners and things, or in this case, the, the uh, military personnel are asleep. Um, the ship in question, the story is a, a military vessel. And so there's a sort of subclass of a uh, military officer who's, uh, instead of serving long-term and active engagements and things, will sign on for a flight or two uh, from point A to point B, and then their career is done. So the night captain is someone who is the captain while everyone else is asleep. Uh, so he's got control of this gigantic uh, miles-long uh, space battleship, uh, with maybe a couple hundred people still awake, making sure everything's running. Because when you're in uh, in warp, you're pretty safe. Um, it's hard to hit something that's moving faster than light. Um, and uh, but the the trouble comes in when you stop to uh, refuel if you need to refuel for very long trips. And uh, and so in the story, they get attacked uh, while refueling um, just at a at a fuel depot, sort of on the edge of nowhere. And uh, he has very little uh, combat experience being a knight captain and has to sort of figure out what to do uh, in that situation. 
What, tell us a little bit about him because he, I mean, the, the character arc he goes through is he, he learns how to, you know, uh, be heroic. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, his name's Roderick and, uh, Roderick is probably, I, I don't, he's the, the younger son of some, you know, noble family. His parents gave him kind of a sinecure, uh, so that he could get in and out of military service without risking his neck, um, as, you know, happened pretty regularly historically. Um, and he uh, acts like it. He's kind of uh, unprepared for, he's, literally, he's very much unprepared for combat. He's kind of a bit of a coward, uh, having never had to face these situations. And there is a difference between, you, you know, training and uh and being in in the thick of it especially if he's just training to be a uh, long distance ship officer he's not doing the crazy you know seal style training um and so he uh yeah he, he's thrown in the deep end here for something he's uh he's trained for but never really expected to face and it's been a long time since he did that kind of training and um one thing he does know is his ship Yes. Like intimately, he knows it because he's been wandering around it basically alone. And this is a huge ship. He, he like runs it. Um, he goes on a run every day. And he can't even run the whole length of it. Yeah, no, it's, it's about, I think it's 12 miles long or something. Because this is in the very, very far future, right? Um, it, it, like Carissa said, she thinks of her series is sort of epic fantasy in space. I, I say the same thing. Um, I don't have the, the technical acumen uh, for hard science fiction. Uh, and, I, and I'll try in that direction, but I'm not going to be able to give you the the missile loadouts of a, of a David Weber, right? So I, I try to try to play to my strengths, and my strengths, uh, uh, as far as combat scenes go, are, are close quarter stuff. I, I've done fencing and, and HEMA and boxing most of my life, so I tried to create a setting that would let lend itself more to that kind of thing. And so most space combat is going to be boarding, but uh, uh, to get back to the ship itself. Um, yeah, it's enormous. And uh, because Roderick's been uh, awake on it for years, he's been all over it at some point or other. Um, and he knows where everything is and obviously he has to run the damn thing. So he, he's familiar with it at a, you know, a bird's eye technical level as well. Um, and so while he uh, may not be able to beat these pirates who board his ship one-on-one, -on -one, uh, mano y mano, he can, uh, he can still outwit them uh, by taking advantage of the ship itself. So um, pirates get on board and uh, we, uh, it, we meet another character who yes. uh, tell us about him and tell us about these high matter swords. Cause that's really interesting to me. Okay. Well, to start with the swords, uh, I really like lightsabers, but they don't make any technical sense um, from a, an engineering standpoint for one. Um, but they don't make any sense from a sword fighting standpoint either, because if you're dealing with a blade that's made out of plasma or light, as it was originally supposed to be before they retconned it, uh, it doesn't weigh anything. And I don't know if you waved a flashlight around, but if you turn a flashlight on and pretend it's a sword, you track that beam across your body um, about eight times in the first two seconds and you'll die. Um, in Star Wars, I was like, well, they're wizards, so they've like, they know how to deal with that kind of thing. Um, but that is unsatisfying, having done as much sword fighting as I've done. Um, and so I, uh, instead of dealing with light, these are weapons that are made of a kind of liquid metal that is a very hypothetical state of matter. It's not mercury, of course. Um, 
but it can be programmed and, uh, and, and shaped to various functions. One of the more extravagant uh, wastes of this technology is to make swords, um, but uh, they're cool. Uh, so the uh, the Imperial Knights will very frequently have one as a showpiece um, and as a practical weapon. They're extremely dangerous uh, because they have uh, edges that are about one molecule wide, so they can cut through a lot of stuff. Um, they can't cut through molecular bonds, but you know, stone, a regular metal, no problem. Legs. Legs, yeah, limbs, yeah. yeah. And so that actually changes the way that you fight with them too, because you can actually use the edge as a thrusting surface, which you can't do with a metal sword. Um, medieval combat you see very frequently people will grab blades and they'll do weird things you can't do that with these so it very much alters the dynamic of the fighting because again something that I wish Star Wars had looked at more being sort of a sword geek um, and so I wanted to do more of that as for the character who wields it this is actually the main character from the series his name is Hadrian he is an imperial knight of some renown um, by this point in his career um, and I wanted to do this story specifically because the books are written from his perspective in first person. And this is the first time that we get to see him outside of himself. And I like to play with the perspective there and have it. He's not exactly the person that he represents himself as both positively and negatively. I think he, he goes too hard on himself sometimes then he elides certain aspects of his personality. And I've done a couple other stories where we get, people who talk about him or, if, or or we see him from the outside and getting different looks at him to sort of uh, figure out by approximation who the real person is. Cause it's something you do in history. Um, I've been reading a lot about the, the Persian empire lately uh, from their point of view, as opposed to the Greek point of view, which is much harder on them. Right. And trying to figure out almost forensically what the true nature of the Persians was uh, has been sort of a hobby for the past couple of weeks but by the same process. I wanted to look at the character um, from outside and see if we can get a different perspective on him. And this was one way to do it with pirates. So, uh, yeah. so he is still awake because he, uh, he doesn't like uh, cryo freezing himself. He puts it off every time they get on one of these journeys for at least the first year or so. And he, these are extraordinarily long lived people also. That is also true. Um, the, uh, the nobility in the empire have, uh, hugely altered their genomes uh, so that they live uh, the the very high-ranking ones for five, six, seven hundred years, the lower ones even for two or three. Um, there's a very so it's not really any big thing for him to hang out for a year by himself. No, 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 not not in terms of his overall life expectancy. Um, he mostly does it actually so that he can get some peace time in at this point between all the other terrible things that he's dealing with in the main series. Um, and uh, this time he just happens uh, to still be awake when more terrible, awkward, you know, awful stuff happens. Um, so this is a kind of the kind of piracy that um, I mean, it's, it's historic as well in that they are after ransoming people to ransom. Is that yeah, one so of the things they might be after? Rather than trying to steal the ship because it's just too big. Um, they are the pirates are after the high-ranking uh, officer, uh, high-ranking officers, because they're mostly from noble families. And uh, as one would do in medieval combat, when you take prisoners, uh, you would ransom the uh, the knights back to their lords, the children of lords back to their parents, and so on, uh, and make money at that. So they're hoping uh, that they can uh, they can they can capture some imperial nobles and ransom them back, um, you know, to their to their houses. Uh, unfortunately for them, the best 
uh, target in, in the form of Hadrian here, the main character from the series, is still awake. Um, so they uh, kind of, you know, there's not, their best picking is out of the, out of the running, as it were, he's still conscious. Um, so that changes their plan a little bit as they're, uh, as, as they're trying to raid the ship. Yeah, yeah. So and it's cool. Uh, well, thank you. Back and forth uh, between the pirates and our heroes as as they try to uh, figure out what the heck to do about all this. Um, and a great introduction. If you haven't read Christopher's books, I mean, you can get into it by this one. Uh, you can get into the the series just by uh, taking this story on. So, um, well, what? Uh, let's talk briefly, maybe about what what is this ongoing allure of writing about pirates? Why would anyone want to write a science fiction uh, pirate story? Maybe Sarah could elucidate this. <laughs> um, I think. Well, I think all of us at some point in life wanted to run away and become pirates. Uh, I think it's the allure of the fact that they're outside the normal path, pattern of humanity. And w their life is both dangerous and transgressive. And we're attracted to that in fiction because it's not boring. <laughs> Nothing boring is a big part of fiction. And because, I mean, it looks like all of us are writing in our pre-made worlds. In your pre-made world, it gives you a chance of exploring the outside of the other stuff you're writing about. I, I think that's mostly it. Uh, in my case, I, uh, I read my great-grandmother used to feed the family on pancakes so that she could buy books, uh, sometimes for weeks, pancakes and vegetable soup. And uh, note that neither my, my grandmother nor her siblings complained. And at some point I found their treasure trove of books somewhere. And there was this 14 volume series of Captain Morgan's adventures with uh, lithograph illustrations and I spent the year I was 12 reading and rereading those books and I was fascinated by them so mm -hmm. I, I, I'll always have a soft spot for pirates because of that even if the reality was tawdry and all that. Could it be this um um so Carissa could it be this this sort of um moral ambiguity that Sarah was is pointing out between, you know, it, sometimes the pirates are the bad guys and sometimes they're the good guys. Um, it depends on whether they're a privateer or not. Or, by the way, we should point out that this cover, um, this is a Don Mates cover, right? Yes, it is. Speaking yeah. of Captain Morgan, um, and uh, uh, Don Mates is the guy that did Captain uh, Captain Morgan Rum Captain for uh, in, in that advertising campaign. So, oh yeah, no, Tony asked me who I wanted to do the cover for this one. And I was like, it has to be done. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. He also did a, a fantastic cover for a Steve Jackson game, GURPS book about, I think it's GURPS swashbucklers. And it's basically sort of the ultimate Captain Morgan rum artwork, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, no, he, is, I mean, he's legendary. He's done so many, he did so many covers during the eighties and nineties and as well. Um, all right, Carissa, 
moral ambiguity pirates go. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, that's, I think that's definitely part of the draw. I mean, I, I've kind of twisted that in my universe where they're kind of the underdog good guy, right? Who bends the rules for survival. Like they were forced into piracy because they were being hunted. And then because they have a background being soldiers, they're like, fine, we'll, we'll take what we need to survive from you. And that was how they became pirates as they started just taking ships and, and whatever they needed from planets. And they had the, they had the power to do it. Um, but their goal is basically leave us alone and we'll leave you alone. But no one seems to want to do that. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, I think moral ambiguity and just that there's a romanticism to, you know, pirates, assassins in fiction, we all want them to be like the bad guy, but maybe Rogue. also kind of the good guy. So. Yeah. Well, it's a long tradition that continues into the future. Um, so, Jim, what uh, what do you think? Like, as a gaming, is there a is piracy going to be possible, and are we going to have pirates? Just that it's going to be part of our world. We have them right now. They don't seem to be going away. Um, uh, although, I think one of the reasons we like pirates. I mean, we like fictional pirates and historical pirates, even though we don't really like the modern pirates, is that uh, for a long time, they were our side, right? You know, the, the English were pirating the Spanish. And then, you know, many of the American colonies were essentially founded by pirates, right? You know, Rhode Island was basically a pirate colony. One of the revered founders, founding figures in New Orleans, where I grew up, is Jean Lafitte, who was a pirate. You know, he 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 had a face heel turn uh, for the Battle of New Orleans in in uh, eighteen fourteen, but uh, you know he went right back to pirating after that. <laughs> but um, so you know, the pirates were often the good guys, at least in Anglo-American popular culture and myth. Yeah, so sure. you know. We project that into the future. Yeah, and they have parrots, which uh, I, are there any of the stories in here, Christopher, that, that has a parrot on a? You know, I don't think so. Don was going to put one on the cover and I don't know what happened to it now that you mention it. Oh, I would um, like a space parrot. Could be a there, robot, par- robot parrot. I, yeah. I think it, I think that yeah. was the plan, actually. Uh, but I don't think one ended up in the story. Maybe I've the got a, sequel could be space parrots. No. <laughs> well, never say nothing. Um, <laughs> you, you never know what Hank's going to do conceptually. Yeah. Um, so, so we'll, what, uh, Christopher? What else can we say about the uh, the book? That uh, I mean, it's just got a, a collection of really cool stories. Um, and if well, you like it does. Pirates. I should mention a couple of the other ones real quick. We've got uh, Larry Niven's A Relic of the Empire in here, which is uh, you know a classic Larry Niven story. Um, so if you haven't read that, it's worth picking up for that reason. Uh, Elizabeth Bear and Sarah Monette have a uh, Lovecraft mythos story in here. Uh, some pirates face off against the Mego, you know, the, the, the fungus people. And uh, it is actually, it's Lovecraft's 130th birthday. I feel like we should mention that. So there is a mythos story in here, um, a more modern one. Uh, but uh, it's also, I want to mention again, I, I mentioned at the beginning that we've got a Fritz Leiber story and a James Blish story that have either never been reprinted or if they have, it's only been once or twice since they were originally published back in the 50s. So uh, it's one of the things Hank and I like to do when we do this is to find um, 
some uh, stuff from old writers and, and, and important writers in the field that have just not uh, resurfaced in, in, in decades. Uh, we did a Paul Anderson story in Space Pioneers that had never been reprinted, right? Um, and this is something we like to emphasize with these collections is trying to find, because Hank has this incredible uh, eidetic memory for, uh, for stories that were published in the, in the pulps between the 40s and about the 70s. You can ask Hank what was the lead story basically in any month in that window, and he can tell you off the top of his head. Yeah. And so, um, and so uh, he always finds these these sort of weird, um, you know, lost gems. We like to bring back uh, up from the depths, as it were. And so, uh, for Liber and for Blitch, it's worth checking checking this one out too. Definitely, definitely. Well, um, the book is Cosmic Corsairs, edited by Hank Davis and Christopher Rocchio. Um, so James Cambius, James L. Cambius, Carissa Locke. Sarah A. Hoyt and Christopher Rocchio, thank you so much for uh, coming on and talking to us about Cosmic Coast Sayers. Thank you, Tony. Yeah, thank you for having us on. Thank you. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's League are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart Star Kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. We're on top of the Terminus now, not them. And if they don't have the firepower to blow us back off of it, they're stuck on this side of it. At best, from their perspective, that would mean they'd have to go home the long way. You could be right, but I'm not convinced someone as smart as this wouldn't be a jump or two ahead of that logic. I'm thinking she probably chose to stay on the side of the Terminus. Because he's expecting friends, ma'am? It's certainly a possibility. Isotalo turned and walked back to her command chair, while the task group's scattered units began accelerating back toward Fudroyant. Given the separation, it would take at least 15 minutes for them to coalesce around the flagship once more. The Mantis would probably translate back out of Hyper well before that. They didn't have time to put that many ships through the Terminus after we went into Hyper, she pointed out, settling into her chair. A beckoning index finger summoned Rosiak to join her and Romalis, and she leaned back. Not in a sequence transit anyway. The minimum time for that would have been, what, 160 seconds? And that would have been with all of them lined up in a tight transit queue. But if they'd intended to fall back on a J, they could have done that any time they wanted to before we translated out. For that matter, if they'd been planning on falling back, they could have been positioned for a simultaneous transit of their entire force. This terminus isn't as big as some, but it's more than big enough to handle that many cruisers simultaneously. And if they'd made transit to a J, 
We'd known they were sitting right on the other side of the terminus, ready to rip our arses off with energy fire when we came through after them. Her staffers nodded, expression somber. A starship transited a wormhole under Warshawski sails, not impeller drive. And that meant it emerged with neither an impeller wedge nor sidewalls. It took several seconds, about 80 in the case of the prime terminus, to clear the wormhole sufficiently to reconfigure to wedge. During those 80 seconds, the ship in question was mother naked against defensive fire. That was one of the reasons Isotalo and her staff were quietly convinced that all the savage vituperation in the news faxes and the assembly against Beowulf was completely unjustified in at least one respect. Colluding with the mantis or not, the Beowulfers had saved hundreds of thousands of SLN lives when they blocked the Beowulf terminus of the Manticorn wormhole junction against Fleet Admiral Tsang. If Tsang had made transit into the teeth of the unshaken Manticorn defenses, her entire fleet would have been massacred even more completely than Filaretta's had been. The politicians and the talking heads could say whatever they liked, but after what had happened to 11th Fleet, any naval officer with two brain cells to rub together knew what would have happened to Tsang would have been even worse, far worse. There has to be a reason they didn't choose to do that, Isotalo went on. And the most likely one that springs to my mind is that they are indeed supposed to be picketing this terminus while another of their task forces takes out the Agatastein Bridge. If that's the case, then they need to keep an eye on us to keep us from setting up an ambush to greet that other task force when it arrives. She showed her teeth. Wouldn't it be sweet if we were the ones sitting on the terminus with a few thousand of our missile pods deployed in the area defense role when the Mantis came back? They wouldn't have any of those damned invisible recon platforms deployed, and even their shipboard sensors would be degraded until the transit energy bled fully away. By the time they picked us up through our stealth, they'd probably be in range for a mass launch, and I would cheerfully use up a half million or so missiles to kick the shit out of one of their point-of-the-spear task forces. That would be nice, ma'am. Ramallah sounded a bit wistful. And that's what they're primarily worried about, I think. Isotalo continued. They want to maintain a sufficient force on this side of the terminus to play watchdog for their friends. An incoming task force wouldn't need recon platforms if there's already an entire damned cruiser squadron sitting here to tell them about us. What about protecting Ajay, though, ma'am? Rosiak asked. She raised an eyebrow at him, and he shrugged. That has to be fairly high on their priority list, too, I'd think, he pointed out. I think we have two main possibilities, Isotalo said. Either what we've been looking at here on the prime side of the terminus is all they've got, or their primary force, at any rate, or it's not. Given how many missiles they threw at us in that one salvo, and given what we've heard so far about the kind of salvos Manti Capital ships can throw, I'm inclined to think there can't be any wallers on the adjacent side. I don't care what some of our less brilliant colleagues might do if they'd brought a couple of those podnots of theirs along. But all I'd have done would have been to run the hell away. And they'd have to assume any SLN admiral with a brain would be thinking exactly that. No way are we going to cross swords with something that can do what those damn things did to Filaretta. Both her subordinates nodded in agreement and profound relief at that. From their perspective, maintaining control of this side of the terminus has to be more attractive than simply defending it from the other side, especially if they're operating against Agata. So again, if they'd had that kind of firepower available, 
I'm pretty sure they'd have brought it through to chase us off, or at least make us keep our distance from the terminus. Given all that, I'm inclined to assume, provisionally at least, that what we've seen is pretty much all they've got. It looks to me like they've decided it's more important to hold this terminus and probably slam the door shut behind us if we go through it than it is to defend from the Ajay side. But that leaves everything in Ajay exposed, ma'am, Rosiak said. It does, but think about it. Isotalo's expression had turned to stone. What's it exposed to, as far as they know? Any of their shipping, or anyone else's in Ajay for that matter, should have plenty of time to run for it before we turn up. Mantis are damned good at commerce protection, everybody knows that. And that's what's going to be on their minds, because they don't know about Buccaneer. They can't. Rosiak inhaled deeply, and Ramallah's expression turned almost as stone-like as Isotalo's. Of course it did, the Admiral thought. Kimo doesn't like Buccaneer one bit more than I do. We'll do it, because those are our orders, and because there's no other way we can hurt the friggin' Mantis at the moment. But he doesn't like it, and he and Bart both know as well as I do that no Manticore naval officer would imagine for a moment that the Solarian League of All-Star Nations would start systematically destroying entire star systems' industrial and orbital infrastructures. Stopping that sort of thing was one of the main reasons the League was created in the first place. The very thought revolted her, but she'd had plenty of time to get over that. And the critical point was that the Mantis didn't know about and would never expect anything like Buccaneer. A commerce raid, yes. An attack on any Manti warships they encountered, the seizure of any merchant vessel they met, any and all of that they would anticipate. And if anything in the galaxy was certain, it was that the Manti CO had sent one of her units back to Ajay to tell every single legitimate commerce raiding target to get the hell out of the star system. That meant she'd cleared her responsibilities in a J, and that meant it would actually make strategic sense for her to let TF-1027 through the terminus into a J, and then close it behind Isotalo, forcing her ships to take the long way home, the way she'd anticipated forcing the Mantis Agata Force to do. Either way, she said, we still have Buccaneer to carry out. She settled herself in her chair, contemplating the consolidating icons on the plot, then looked at Rosiak. I want quickly here on the terminus. The operations officer looked startled, and she chuckled harshly. Not to stay, Bart, she reassured him. Trust me, I want her task group in and out as quickly as possible. By the time she gets here, you're going to have put together a pod deployment plan that will let me detach Santini with enough firepower to give even a division of Manti's super dreadnought something to worry about. Ideally, I want him to be able to hold the terminus against anything they throw at it long enough for us to withdraw from a J, hopefully with Buccaneer's mission objectives completed. And please, God, without Parthion on my conscience, she added silently. That was another entry in the complete serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com and to podcast theme composer, Ruth Jekowitz. And the shivered timbers of a special edition reverse Spanish galleon made entirely of gold and carrying timbers, which did not float as well as intended, but was very lustrous going down. Plus thanks and praise for editor and authors, 
of Cosmic Corsairs. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.